Few things are more personal and more precious to us than our name. From the youngest age, we've been encouraged to uh, step out into the world and do something with that name. Whether in keeping with our school's motto to be the best that we can be, or following our culture's mandate to be whoever you want to be, we've all, to a greater or lesser extent, acted on making a name for ourselves. The pressure that many feel is very real. It may come from without, perhaps from close family, and who they would have us be may arise from within, from our own ambition for our studies, for our work, for our homes. Of course, this isn't the only thing we give ourselves to, but one of our greatest ongoing life projects is cultivating and curating our name. So, no wonder few things are more personal. Think on how we react when someone slanders us, falsely seeking to damage our name. In those assaults, in our response, we recognize just how precious our name is. But for all that striving, is your name of any real lasting significance? Other than to yourself and perhaps a small circle of loved ones, you see the dominant narrative that most Londoners today inhabit tells us we are each a flickering candle soon to be snuffed out at death. Everything goes dark in the end. As for our name, well, I know the names of my grandparents. I know who to ask for the names of my great-grandparents. At a push, I might just be able to find out the names of my great-great-grandparents, but not the names of any before them. It's as if death has blotted them out. And all of us are destined for the same, or so the narrative goes. Sure, there may be someone here who is the one in a million whose name goes on a little bit further, an Albert Einstein, or a Queen Elizabeth, an Elon Musk, or a Taylor Swift. Still... Still, long before our sun suffers its heat death, even those names will have been long forgotten, definitively blotted out. Get over it, you say. And we could all do that with relative ease, each resigning ourselves to the fact that our name has no lasting significance, or... Or we could opt into an altogether different narrative. One which tells us that your name isn't only precious to you. It is still more precious to the one who made you. A narrative 
within which once your name is written in, the author goes to great lengths to ensure it is never blotted out. We're opting in to such a narrative as we open and read this book of Ruth together. Behind the events unfolding in these chapters stands the one who is both the God of the living and the dead. Indeed, the God who raises the dead. One of the earliest indicators of this death-defying commitment to his people comes in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, where we read this. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Well, strange though it sounds, here is how the living God will defy death amongst his people, preventing a name from being blotted out, ensuring it lives on. So here, we're given the key to understanding Ruth's otherwise extraordinary behavior in chapter 3. As Su Tuan read this account, were we on the edge of our seats, wondering whether Ruth was going to have cause to spit in Boaz's face? Were we keen to discover which of, of Boaz or this, this closer relative would hereafter be referred to as the unsandaled? Probably not. But this is where we've got to in our short sermon series. Here we have Naomi, the widow, unable to marry outside her family. Indeed, now too old to marry at all. Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, is also the widow. The whole family line has been reduced all the way down to only these two. And left to themselves in Moab, they're very much the walking dead. But their return to Bethlehem doesn't immediately bring them into their much-needed rest. If only the path of life 
were that direct. No, Naomi and Ruth's return to Bethlehem is presented to us as a return to the Lord, the one who will raise the dead. But those who return to him must first seek refuge in him and then be redeemed by him before entering his rest. So that's the path we're following through this book, from return to refuge, through redemption to rest. Here in chapter 3, all eyes are on the Redeemer. We've seen the desperate situation in which Naomi and Ruth find themselves, one of utter powerlessness, even bitter emptiness. Who is going to step in and make the difference? Who will Ruth's Redeemer be? The first thing for us to note is Ruth's extraordinary perceptiveness, even her extraordinary faith. You see, Boaz has already been functioning as a guardian redeemer for these two women. Ever since Ruth sought refuge in his field, Boaz has ensured she has gone home with enough bread to feed both of them. Boaz has said to her back in chapter 2, verse 12, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Those words certainly sparked a realization in both Naomi and Ruth's minds. Here in chapter 3, verse 9, As Ruth tells Boaz to spread the corner of your garments over me, what is happening? To spread the corner or wings of his garment over her would be for Boaz to become the answer to his own prayer. He would be the specific means by which the Lord now provides refuge for Ruth. And, of course, not just any refuge. The imagery of Boaz spreading his garment over Ruth is like how a couple might share a duvet today. It speaks of marriage. Was this a risky move on Ruth's part? Yes, to an extent. Notice Naomi's instructions there in verse 4. When Boaz lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. In other words, do all the visually symbolic bits, uh, but don't dare say anything. Stay silent. Let him tell you what to do. But what testifies to Ruth's extraordinary perceptiveness is that she doesn't stay silent. Instead, she tells Boaz what to do. 
Boaz himself knows that Ruth has come to be respected as a woman of noble character there in Bethlehem. That reputation would have been forfeit in a moment if she had got this wrong. Yet this is no random gamble on Ruth's part. Naomi has clearly filled her in on the function and responsibilities of a guardian redeemer. Her head is fully informed. Ruth knows also that Naomi is now too old to have another husband. She had said it herself. So the redemption needed will only come by Ruth taking the initiative for both their sakes. Her heart is fully engaged. Well, two things are shown to us about redemption in this encounter. First, you will never pursue it so long as it seems other options remain open to you. So long as it seems strength remains within you. It's only when you've exhausted all other options and the last of your strength that you willingly receive it. This is the place that Ruth is in. She knows there is nowhere else to turn. As to the risk, she's now got nothing left to lose and everything to gain. It is in her utter powerlessness that Ruth's extraordinary faith kicks in. She says to Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me. The boldness of her request comes from a certainty of what her entitlements were. Written into God's law, there is that requirement placed on the closest eligible relative to act and fulfill his responsibility as a redeemer. So, brush aside any notion that what we're looking in on here is a segment of love, actually. Far from a couple romancing one another, what we're actually seeing is Ruth suing Boaz for what is now rightly hers. Think of what it is to, to sue someone in a, in a court of law. We might well picture it as mental arm wrestling, trying to bend a reluctant person to act favorably towards us. Well, what testifies to the character of both Ruth and Boaz is, it's not that here. What we're seeing is Ruth taking the initiative in showing kindness towards Boaz, verse 10, as a way of triggering his kindness towards her. The second thing we're shown about redemption in this encounter is it comes at a cost. A cost which the Redeemer must bear. So we need to look more closely at Boaz himself. What did Ruth see in him 
as he himself says, not his youth. There is another potential guardian redeemer, one more closely related and and so perhaps even a a better prospect for Ruth. Uh, But look at the conversation between Boaz and this other redeemer there in chapter 4. The redemption Ruth seeks is going to cost the price of purchasing a piece of land from Naomi, verse 3, as well as marrying Ruth, verse 5. This intriguingly nameless redeemer first weighs up purchasing the land, and that seems more of an investment than a cost, so he's in. But when mention is made of Ruth becoming his wife, he does the maths again and realizes it will weigh up less in his favor. This will incur a cost he is not willing to bear. What cost specifically? Verse 5, maintaining the name of the dead. He sees this as being at the expense of maintaining his own name. For him, a cost too high. So much so that the potential danger to his reputation of being nicknamed the unsandled would seem preferable. Now everything falls to Boaz. Perhaps Boaz is of very different means, perhaps of very different family circumstances, but he's dealing with essentially the same maths. There's again the cost of purchasing the land from Naomi. There's the the cost of taking Ruth uh, uh, under his roof as his wife. Of course, there's also the cost of taking Naomi into his home as well. Yet that doesn't faze him. He's already sent Ruth home with an abundance of barley. So Naomi wouldn't go empty. We might even say Naomi's bitter emptiness is already beginning to be filled out of Boaz's abundant kindness to her. But there are wider costs to be factored in. Assuming Boaz doesn't already have other children of his own, then this move will be at significant cost to his own name. His estate, his inheritance, a large chunk of it will be diverted to a more distant branch of his family. But then what if Ruth remains childless? After all, she had been married to one of Naomi's sons, and in the course of perhaps a decade, no children had appeared. If Ruth remains childless, then this redemption will not have served to maintain the name of the dead. In fact, if Ruth remains childless and Boaz is already childless, the further risk is of his own name being blotted out. Also, sadly, 
no matter how noble a woman she is perceived to be, Boaz is marrying a foreign Moabite would likely meet with some racial stigma. So, whichever way you look at it, whether in its economic, social, or spiritual dimensions, the cost of redemption is significant. You won't step into the Redeemer's role lightly. And you can't step into that role blindly. Boaz didn't. When Ruth tells him what he should do, with no reluctance, no delay, Boaz says, I will do for you all you ask. Just what Ruth needs is just what she finds in this Redeemer. But there's probably something else that needs to be said here about Boaz. It isn't all sacrifice on his part. Like Ruth, there is an extraordinary perceptiveness and extraordinary faith on Boaz's part. He too believes in the God who raises the dead. Any risk to his own name arising because Ruth may remain childless, that's a low risk on his risk register. You see, you can't escape noticing in this narrative that whatever hopes he might previously have had for his own family line, Boaz, in linking his life to Ruth and Naomi, is prepared to tie his future hopes to theirs. Even if he didn't, we get to see that this was a very good move. Through Boaz, God will raise up kings. David will be Boaz's greater son. Jesus will be David's still greater son. In what Boaz does for Ruth and Naomi, we're given a faint glimpse of the far greater redemption that Jesus brings about for you and me. How ultimately does the living God ensure that our names are never blotted out? It's by tying them to Jesus. Jesus is able to maintain the names of the dead in a way that Boaz never could. That's because, unlike Boaz, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus didn't step into the shoes of a redeemer lightly or blindly. He knew what it would cost, and he willingly bore that cost, gladly giving his all. No one ever had cause to spit in his face. So perhaps Ruth's Redeemer is never more like our Redeemer than in this. His willingness to do for us all that we ask. You and I can find ourselves in the very worst of times, yet still 
we're reluctant to admit our need of redemption. So long as it seems other options remain open to us, so long as it seems strength remains in us, you and I will see no need of Jesus as our Redeemer. But alongside Naomi and Ruth, many of us here can testify that it was reaching the very end of ourselves, sunk in that place of complete powerlessness, even emptiness, that we find ourselves lying at his feet. It's only when we've nothing left to lose that we see that in Jesus, our Redeemer, we have everything to gain. We might do well to follow Ruth's lead in this. See how she comes to Boaz? Boldness shines through it all. Why don't we follow Ruth's lead in being bold, in claiming from Jesus what he says can be yours, beginning with the forgiveness of your sins and your adoption into his family. If you're not assured of these things yet, give him no rest until you are. Sue him for his promises. Put another way, don't just look to him as your redeemer. Throw yourselves upon him and tell him what to do. Tell him to redeem you. Nothing, nothing will please him more than acting on such a request. The discovery that then awaits us is far from trying to overturn any reluctance on Jesus's part, will instead be tapping into his abundant kindness. The discovery that further awaits us again and again is, as few things are more precious to you and I than our names, few things are more precious to Jesus than your name, my name, and the name of each person who looks to him for redemption. Amen.